Good morning. It is, it's just so, I don't know, refreshing or encouraging as I am sitting in the back and I get to watch many of you come into the service, you know, as things are getting going. I'm just saying like, God, thank you. Thank you that they're here this morning. Thank you that they're here this morning. Thank you that we get to be together. Um, it's a gift. It really is a gift. And um, I'm seeing some that are here today that it's difficult for them to be here. And I just say thank you. Thanks for uh, being with us today and letting us be with you. Um, and again, for those that are here for the very first time, welcome. We are finishing up our Hebrews uh, study. Uh, but before we get to that, I also want to say a happy Palm Sunday to you. It is Palm Sunday around the world. The church is celebrating uh, Jesus' <clears throat> entry into Jerusalem, uh, where he's going to spend uh, his final week. There he's going to be arrested. He's going to uh, go through a trial, sort of a mock trial. He's going to be crucified. And then, and then one week from today, uh, we celebrate the fact that he's, he's resurrected from the dead. These, these uh, final seven days of his in Jerusalem... Uh, they're so full of activity, so full of significance, that uh, the writer um, of one of the Gospels, Luke, spends over 25% of his entire Gospel just recording the final week of Jesus' life, of three years. Uh, 25% of his Gospel is devoted just to the final seven days of Jesus' life. Here's how Luke recorded Jesus' triumphal entrance into Jerusalem, and which we're remembering today. As Jesus approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus through their cloaks. Uh, on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to, to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I tell you, Jesus replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And it's in Luke 19. Uh, this got my attention recently, this whole account. And, and I began looking up how other Gospels record this um, event. And I was noticing that in other Gospels it mentions that some people were spreading their cloaks on the road as Jesus approached, while others were laying down yeah, palm branches, as, as, 
as it says, especially John brings that up. It's a mystery to me why some were choosing to put down cloaks and why some were using palm branches. I don't have an answer. Maybe you have an answer. You can let me know what the reason for that is. But I, it got me curious, and so I did some investigation as to why cloaks, why palm branches, what's the significance. And I'm going to bring this up because it's tied to our study of Hebrews in a pretty significant way. So hang with me. In the Old Testament, palm branches were used during festive celebrations. Who knew this? Yeah, now we all know. They were used in the Old Testament uh, during festive celebrations. For instance, in Leviticus 23, we read about how the Israelites were to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. And here's the instructions. So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of Sabbath rest, and the eighth day also is a day of Sabbath rest. On the first day, you are able to take branches from luxuriant trees from palms. Yeah, here we go. From willows and other leafy trees. We have some willow trees out here. Uh, They would suffice. And rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. And in the New Testament book, I had noticed this before. I'm sure all of you are like, you haven't noticed this before? But here, judge me. Um, I had noticed this. In Revelation chapter 7, John, the one recording the book of Revelation, noticed the worshipers waving palm branches in the heavenly celebration of Jesus, who's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. After this, John wrote, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. I knew all that. They were wearing white robes. And they were what? Holding palm I missed that. Holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out to the Lord with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's Revelations 7, 9, and 10. Cloaks. Cloaks. Why do we call Palm Sunday, not Cloak Sunday? This is a question I've been asking some of you. I'm still wondering. You can wonder with me now for the rest of your life. Cloaks have biblical significance too. Who knew? In 1 Kings 19, for instance, there's the story of when Elijah called Elisha to follow him as this disciple. As part of this process, Elijah put his cloak around Elisha as a symbol that Elisha, after serving as his apprentice, would become Elisha's successor. Elijah's cloak was used symbolically to show Elisha's submission to him as uh, in, in spiritual authority. And then in 2 Kings 9, there's an account of people who laid down their cloaks at the feet of a newly appointed king as a sign of their submission to his authority. You can see how it's connected. In the Old Testament cases, cloaks were used to show respect, honor, submission to someone with authority, like a prophet or like a king. So these Old Testament accounts help us 
me anyway, better understand the significance of why the people blessing Jesus as the king who comes in the name of the Lord were laying down both cloaks and branches as he entered Jerusalem. On that first Palm Sunday, the crowd welcomed Jesus as their victorious king into Jerusalem with honor, respect, and spiritual authority while simultaneously celebrating his triumphal entrance with hopeful anticipation of his rule and reign. That's it. There'll be a test afterwards on the significance of palms and cloaks on Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday. This is, this is the point of the book of Hebrews. Jesus rules and reigns. It's the whole point of the book. And because he rules, the writer of Hebrews gives assurance that we can put our full faith, our full trust in him as we live out our faith in worship. Loving and serving others. What's the point of Hebrews? He rules. Now you got it. It's why this whole series has been called He Rules. It's because this is the point. Jesus rules. Jesus rules over all creation. I'm going to rehearse Hebrews. We saw it. He rules over all creation. He rules over angels over demons, over prophets, over the Jewish law, over priests, over high priests, and even over that mysterious guy named Melchizedek. Jesus rules over sin and death, and he alone has the ability to forgive sin and make us holy. Jesus rules over his holy people, the church, and over our relationships with one another. Jesus rules over the past, over the present, and the future, making it possible for us to face today and tomorrow with faith in him, come what may. And because he rules, we're able to do this with confidence as we persevere by faith, looking forward to the fulfillment of his promises. Jesus rules over an unshakable kingdom that we receive as his worshipers with reverence and in awe and with great celebration, both now and forevermore. Why? Because he rules. Jesus rules. Amen? Oh, let that sink deep in here. He rules and reigns now and forevermore. And that gives us hope today as we face whatever we face. So God, thank you for the truth of your word, which is also unshakable. God, our hope and our trust and our confidence is in no one else, in nothing else but you, Jesus. So we pray that you would continue to teach us and guide us, Holy Spirit, as we open your word into this last chapter of this book, and let your word, God, transform our hearts and our minds in obedience to you, Lord Jesus, in your name and to your glory. Amen and amen. I would like to invite Leah and Paul to come up. They're going to read the passage for us. 
this morning. Luke 13. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will moral keep your lives free from the love of money and content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way and life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our heart to be strengthened by grace, not by eating conventional foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those there, the tabernacle, have no right to. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer God as a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Have no confidence. Have confidence in your leaders and submit other to other to their authority, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For what that would be no benefit. Pray for us, our sure that we have clear conscience and desire to live in every way. I particularly argue, urge you, pray so that I may be restored to you. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, urge you to bear with my word for ex- of exportation, for in fact I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released, and he arrives soon. I will come with him and see you. Great, greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace. Amen. <clears throat>
Thank you, Paul and Leah. It's our text this morning. Let's jump in. <clears throat> when discussing the final chapter of Hebrews, some of you know this about me, context is really important when studying Scripture, when teaching Scripture. And um, so I think it's important to remember uh, that the recipients of this letter were under um, severe duress. We've been mentioning that many times in this series. And it was right, it was because um, the threats of this tyrannical ruler, Nero, who was the emperor of Rome, and his threats and actions against them were getting more and more real, and people were getting imprisoned, and, and, um, and so their fate was uncertain under, under his uh, rule. <clears throat> so to avoid this persecution that they were increasingly experiencing, these Christian converts from Judaism were being tempted to renounce their allegiance to Jesus and return to the religious system that they grew up. We've talked a lot about this. The writer of this book was imploring them to resist this temptation by remaining true to Jesus, trusting that he had something far better for them than they could ever find anywhere else. Uh, now, I personally cannot uh, imagine or even relate to the level of stress that these Christians must have been under in this time. But I do know that many of us do struggle with a degree of stress. Am I right about this? Yeah? Okay. Uh, so when Beverly and I experience stress, we've, we've noticed, sometimes comically, we've noticed that it can affect our attitude and actions, and usually not in very good ways when we're experiencing stress. Uh, in fact, when we're really stressed, we sometimes refer to it as going into animal brain. It's our code. Like, uh, I'm in animal brain. You might want to back off. <laughs> means I'm stressed. I'm not thinking clearly. Beverly's particularly, I, I have permission to say this to you, she's particularly susceptible to going into animal brain when she's feeling rushed or overwhelmed, uh, she, she can, she can uh, go into animal brain. I'm more apt to go into animal brain when I'm lost. I've talked about this before with some of you. Or confused. Lost or confused. I go, I go animal brain. I get stressed. A recent example for me of going into animal brain, this happens. Uh, you just sort of can lose your sense of what you're doing. Uh, so I went to make a cup of coffee, and uh, maybe some of you have had this experience. You go, you make the cup of coffee, you go push, start, and then you walk away because you've got a couple of minutes while it's brewing your lovely cup of coffee in the cup that I forgot to put underneath the coffee pot. <laughs> yeah. So that happens, right? When a person is in animal brain, sometimes they just lose track of what they're doing because they're all stressed out. The mess that was made that particular morning became a metaphor for me of how stress can quickly make a mess of my life. Going into animal brain, or some people call, refer to it as fight, flight, or freeze, um, it's a common experience, actually, especially for those who experience um, stress or anxiety. Uh, and, and the more stress and anxiety, the more, you, you, the more uh, animal brain gets manifest. 
In these moments, sometimes they only last a moment. Sometimes they last longer, days, sometimes months. And in extreme cases, they can last years. Uh, and I think that that's what a lot of people that are in war-torn nations deal with all the time. High stress, and that can last for years. Uh, and not just when the war's over, too. And it just has ongoing effects in people's lives. So this is all real stuff. When, uh, when we get into this state, we can be more forgetful. We can be more careless, is my case. We can be more clumsy. We can be, certainly become more irritable. And we could become more demanding. Basically, we could just become more self-centered. We're usually, when we're an animal brain, less observant, less thoughtful, less likely to listen well to others, and generally less aware of the needs of others, in fact. Uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. When we're in animal brain, we have less of all of that. The pervasive anxiety about the future because of Nero's increased threats and hostility against them maybe helps to explain why the writer of Hebrews in this very last chapter was having to remind the community of believers of some, of some basic things that they probably had already been taught. They probably already knew this stuff here, but because of the state that they were in, they had forgotten to practice some basic things, or uh, they just were neglecting it. So his first reminder to them in Hebrews 13 was, it's very basic, just keep on Loving one another. That's all I ask. Just keep on loving one another. How hard can that be? Well, when you're stressed, it can be very difficult. And when the community is stressed, it's even harder. Keep on loving. So it's difficult to love when the brain and the emotions and the body and the soul are stressed. When an animal brain, our vision becomes myopic. Making it more difficult to even see the needs of others, let alone respond to those needs. So this stiff reminder that the writer of Hebrews was making here was sort of like a, um, like a lifeline, pulling them back from the free, free falling into this bottomless pit of self-absorption. Love one another, and not just one another, even the strangers, even the prisoners, and your sisters and brothers that are already enduring hardships. Love them. Don't distance yourself from them. Lean toward them. Help them. Come alongside them. Love them. Don't run away. Stress can cause us to become self-centered. Stress can also cloud our moral judgment, which can lead us to becoming more vulnerable to temptation and to sin. So the writer addressed a few specific examples where he had concern for them. I don't know the specifics, but we know that it was a concern that he had for this community. He talks about being faithful in marriage. He talks about maintaining sexual purity. And he talks about learning to be content with whatever you have. So these temptations stem from the same root of sin that we call greed. Greed is simply an intense and a selfish desire 
for something that doesn't belong to us. And we're all susceptible to it, aren't we? In various ways. It might be in a marital context. It might be in the context of sexual purity. It might be in the context of money or material things. And this writer says, um, avoid this. Stress can make us even more vulnerable to want something or to want someone as a way of numbing or forgetting our problems and our pain. It's real. And we have to deal with it all the time. The Apostle Paul knew what stress was, and he learned how to manage its temptation. He wrote this in Philippians in chapter 4. He said, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So the secret to being content in marriage, in singleness, in the wealth that sometimes we can receive, or even in our poverty, the secret to being success is, isn't found in our possessions, it's not found in other people, It's found by finding joy and satisfaction in Jesus. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly the only way that we can uh, find contentment. So in verse 5 of Hebrews 13, uh, we're all reminded of God's promise to us. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Mm. Everything in this world will eventually pass away, except our relationship with God. Jim Elliott, some of you know Jim Elliott. Some of you um, have yet to uh, discover this um, brother. He, He was a missionary. He died while bringing the gospel to those who had not yet heard on October 28, 1949, he kept a daily journal, and this is what he wrote on that particular day. Gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Because Jim found his joy and satisfaction in Christ alone, he was able to live and die boldly for Christ. We too can live, and when it's our time, we can also boldly die for Christ. As we are reminded day after day, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Or as he says in verse 6, quoting an Old Testament passage again, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, for what can mere mortals do to me? This is good news for this church that's undergoing this persecution by Nero, and it's good news for every one of us. Is that true? Yeah. So these are good passages to commit to memory. Hebrews chapter 11, it's that faith chapter. It's full of examples of men and women who lived their lives this way, faithfully pursuing God and his intended purposes for their lives, living fully for Christ and dying boldly for him. So in verse 7 of chapter 13, these and other leaders that they had personally known were held up as examples of faithful men and women who had taught them 
God's word, their faith, the writer says, it's worth imitating by the way that they lived and in some cases even the way they died. They were leaders of integrity who, like the Apostle Paul, they were able to say this. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's what every, honestly, it's what every Christian ought to be able to say. Follow me for I'm simply trying to follow Christ. We can trust leaders whose lives are built on the unshakable foundation of Jesus, the one and the only one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I consider myself so fortunate to have found this church body in 1980. I was a young college student. I was a mere toddler in Christ. I could barely walk. But I was blessed to have tremendous Christ-like role models who taught me the word of God. I love the fact that I can talk about some of these people. I can talk about John and Jane back there, and they're here. I'm just internally indebted to John and Jane. And for helping me to learn God's word. Jack and Vi Oliphant. Jack and Cindy Letart. Dave and Jean Coles had a huge impact in our lives. Gary and Linda Pascarell, I probably wouldn't be on staff if it wasn't for some ways that God spoke to me through them. Dave and Donna Valentine not only helped us in the early years, but continue to help us. They continue to mentor us in really helpful ways. These are just a few of the men and women that have helped me, helped Beverly and me, to to learn how to live out the Word of God. And they always were pointing us to Jesus, to Jesus. So I remember these leaders, and I thank God for every single one of you. As the writer of Hebrews begins to write up, uh, wrap up this letter, he returned to Uh, He returns in verses 9 to 14. We're not going to dive into it. We could do a whole sermon on just these five verses. We won't uh, today anyways. 9 to 14. It's it's returning to this theme that he's emphasized throughout the book. I'm going to sum it up this way. Namely, that returning to Judaism with its laws and religious requirements would be a grave mistake is what he's trying to repeat here. Instead, he encouraged them to find their strength in the grace of God through Jesus Christ, the one who suffered and died for their sins on the cross, and I'm gonna help you to interpret this a little bit, on the cross outside the city of Jerusalem who's, um, and who shed blood purified them, making them a holy people. I just summed up, 9 to 14, we could do a whole sermon on this section right here, so you can thank me for that. (laughs) Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, became the perfect sacrifice for our sin. Yeah. And in return, we get to offer to God the sacrifice of praise. That according to verses 15 and 16, it actually has more to do with us sharing our faith with those who don't yet know Christ. In doing this in both with our words and with our deeds, then it actually has to do with singing music or making music. Oftentimes we hear this as sacrifice of praise and we start dancing or singing. It actually has to do with proclaiming his name to people that don't yet know Christ. That is offering up the sacrifice of 
praise. Our worship of God, our sacrifice of praise is reflected vertically as we grow in love and obedience to him and horizontally as we love and serve others in Jesus' name. It's the cross. The writers in verse 17 mention briefly the kind of relationship these believers were to have with their leaders. I'm speculating here as a leader, speculating. Perhaps some of them had begun to blame their leaders for getting them into this place of hostility with Nero. Remember how quick the Israelites were to blame Moses for leading them into that barren desert and to put up with all that manna. Uh, Leaders, leaders, when things get hard, leaders are very easy to blame. They're just an easy target. And I wonder if maybe that's not going on here. And and the writer says, please don't. Please don't do that. In addition to showing respect for their leaders, the writer, and I love this transition, for the very first time in this this letter, I believe that this is true. You can fact check me. I believe that for, for the very first time in this letter, the writer actually gets personal. And he asks in these verses 18 and 19 for their prayers for him. And then also for those that he serves with. I think it's the first time that we get a glimpse on some personal aspect of this writer. So just as he throughout this entire book had been calling them to live true to their allegiance to Christ. Now he's asking them for their prayers for him. And for the other church leaders. That they too would continue to live honorably for Jesus in every way. Church, it is always right to pray for your leaders. Always. And Aaron and uh, and Beverly and I, along with the church council, we love praying for this church. We love praying for this church. And we appreciate your prayers for us too. So thank you. The final chapter of Hebrews concludes with a benediction and the traditional greetings that we find at the end of many New Testament letters. Actually, it almost ends, some of us were discussing this in our home group, it almost ends the way that the Apostle Paul would end some of his letters. It's, very, it's a very familiar um, pattern. So I'm going to begin to conclude my comments by pointing out that this benediction, which we find in verse 20, which has been our benediction throughout most of this series, it's actually a prayer for this persecuted community of believers Pointing them again to Jesus, who also endured great suffering. And who after his death and burial was raised to life and is uniquely able to give to them all that they needed as they continue to pursue his will for their lives. The writer's confidence was not in their ability to persevere, but in Christ's ability to give them everything that they needed. To persevere. Big difference. It's always right to put our confidence in Christ and to look to him for everything we need in this life and in the life to come. It's so fitting that the letter of Hebrews, which was devoted to helping a church who had been second-guessing their commitment to Christ, ends with these words. Grace be with you all. Grace be with Grace can be understood by the acronym G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. God's grace is the richness of his love, 
which we see in Christ, who, while we were living in sin and rebellion against him, made a way through his sacrificial death on the cross for us to be forgiven, for us to be restored to the full and the eternal life with God that's promised to all of his children. It's amazing. Grace be with you all. Our circumstances change. Even throughout this series, we've only been in the series for two months or so, a lot of our circumstances have changed since we began this book. I know some of your circumstances have changed. Sometimes our circumstances change for good. Sometimes our circumstances change for bad. But we're reminded as we read the book of Hebrews that Jesus remains faithful yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. So for this reason, in whatever season of life you're in or I am, let us not look back. Let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as we live out our our lives by faith in him. Friends, none of us, none of us um, is promised an easy life. Uh, I know some people come to, they think that once I become a Christian, then God's just going to help me have everything I ever wanted in life, and life's suddenly going to become awesome. No, um, God doesn't promise an easy life. We are not promised an easy life. And none of us, none of us are guaranteed to receive everything in life that we want. It's hard. It's a hard truth. It's a hard reality. But thanks be to God. That his free gift of abundant and eternal life in Christ is one that we cannot lose. But it's one that we gain, and it is one to everyone's gain. Jesus rules. He always has, and he always will. And in response, he's not asking us to lay down our cloaks or palm branches, but our very lives in full submission to him. As our king. So I hope and I pray as we continue to reflect on this passage and as we go into communion that this will be our posture both now and into the future. Yeah. Amen.